Age of Reason in 1794, and it was the, just 20 years after our founding. It was the first Christian, the first anti-Christian bestseller, and it triggered Bible-burning parties on both sides of the Atlantic. They were burning Bibles at Yale and Harvard and other places on our side of the pond and then in, in, in other places in Europe. And Payne's fury wasn't directed at God, but at churches, which he wrote were set up to terrify and enslave mankind. My own mind, he said, is my own church. Now, Payne was not an atheist. He had substantial religious views, unbiblical, but substantial. His problem was with church, the church and with pastors. He was decidedly anti-church and anti-clergy. And the charge against priests and pastors from Payne and others was not that they were preaching about some imaginary God who doesn't exist, but that they were oppressing people. But Payne was driven by his own vision of moral uh, human morality. He judged the church and Christians by that standard. In our time, Richard Dawkins wrote that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. So there's so much wrong with that statement, it's hard to know where to start. But never mind that Jesus called that God uh, Father, and he said that that God, that he and that God were one. So Dawkins comes to his conclusion by a moral standard like Payne did, largely derived from the Christian worldview, from Christ himself. And many in history have rejected Christianity and yet have reverenced Christ. Even Voltaire, that angry non-Christian that he was, treated Jesus with great reverence, especially later in his life. So many people historically have denied Christ's deity but have admired his morality. And C.S. Lewis famously wrote about how you, you, Jesus didn't give the option of him just being a good man. He was a, a lunatic, a liar, or he was Lord, but he couldn't just be a good man. But they don't blame Jesus for the bad behavior of Christians. They blame Christians for misrepresenting Jesus. And disbelief has historically been rooted more in the actions of professing Christians than in a struggle with Jesus himself. The website, the Roy's Report, uh, has no shortage of terrible stories of professing Christian leaders who do who just do bad things. And Julie Roy's is a believer. She has her reasons for having that website. But a website with stories of Christians sacrificially doing good things would not be as interesting to people. And the other problem would be, where would you even start? There'd be too much content to even have it on a website. But nonetheless, the statistically few professing Christians who act like knuckleheads can cause widespread damage to the reputation of the church. I refuse to personally own what some knucklehead who claims to be a Christian does, but still the reputation of Christ is impacted. And you can try to separate them, and people have tried for years to separate Christ as the head of the church and the people who claim him, but, but his reputation is tied in the minds of many people to what people who claim him do. It's hard to find balance in this because on the one hand, we say things like the church is a hospital full of sick people, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. True, but cliche. But also, just not good excuses for bad behavior. So we're supposed to be Christ's body on earth, and we are, we are his spirit-powered new creations, and we are still, John's told us over and over, still sinful people. So we have to find balance. We're sinful still, but we're transformed. Jesus is perfect, not his people, but his people reflect on him. Today we're going to look at the larger theme of 1 John, and then we're going to go back to verse by verse in the, in the weeks to come. But today we're going to do a macro view of John's intent. So we'll get the Google Earth view, then we'll go back down and look at it sort of verse by verse. 
So I'm not going to read all the passages today because we're going to read those in the weeks to come. His goal in his book is pastoral. It's confidence. It's certainty. Certainty for an age of uncertainty. The first century was a very uncertain age. Guess what? 21st century, very uncertain age. Every age until the final age is age of uncertainty. And we desperately want certainty. We want certainty about our future. But if we're honest, we know we're going to die. And death for most people is not going to be an easy process. We want certainty about our loved ones, but we know we can't control outcomes for our loved ones. We want certainty about bank accounts, job security, retirement, happiness, government, this particular flight I'm on. We want certainty, but we feel insecure because we know we don't have certainty. And one approach to the reality of uncertainty is a kind of denial. Just don't think about it. Keep a steady diet of noise going, the pursuit of pleasure or whatever going to divert our minds from thoughts of uncertainty. And way before there were iPhones and everybody glued to them, back in the 70s when I, I, my roommate, my football roommate, when we would go on road trips at Wichita State, he would, he would go to sleep with the TV on, all three channels that were available, um, uh, maybe four with PBS, and then, and then he would, and I would turn it, up, turn it off in the middle of the night, and then he would wake up and turn it back on. I knew some things about his life, that I know he, he, he did not want to be alone with his own mind. Another approach is to attempt disengagement to become a practical Buddhist. Life is suffering. Suffering is caused by desire. You eliminate suffering by eliminating desire. I'm just going to not care so I won't suffer. Another approach is just despair. Give in to the hopelessness of uncertainty. But we're not supposed to do any of that. We're supposed to live with proactive faith. Trusting God with the things we're uncertain about and trusting God when he says you can be certain about this. And John has written to Christians that we would have certainty, the right kind of certainty. And he gives us two big ticket items and these two big ticket items cover everything else. A certainty about who Christ is, which means we have certainty about what's ultimate reality, what's life about. And then certainty about knowing you have eternal life, which is certainty about who are we, what's our problem, what's the solution, what happens when we die. All the big questions humans have are embedded in those two things, which John said you can have certainty about. So John began with what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've observed, what we've touched. He said, in space and time, Christ has come. God became man to bring us eternal life. And that life he's brought us, that eternal life, is not just what we often think of or what the world thinks, it, thinks we believe is just more, not just quantity. Eternal life is not quantity. It's a different kind of life. It's life in Christ. It's a different quality of life. It's not just more existence. It's a different kind of existence. I read this week about a 48-year-old tech mogul who's spending all of his time and money trying to extend his life, trying to get more time. He's completely and unashamedly self-focused. Say, I don't have time for relationships, for people. I'm doing all this to extend my time. So he's spending all his energy on getting more life. Ironically, he's not living. He's focused on not dying. So he's wasting his time on the selfish pursuit of more time. That's not eternal life. That's not the life that Christ offers. Biblical eternal life our minds go to time, but it's not more the same kind of life, but an entirely different kind of life that begins at conversion and doesn't end post-mortem. It goes on. So we're restored to our original design. We're made by God for God. We're broken by sin. We're restored by the gospel. And as we walk in the light now, we get a taste of this. We get, 
We have already not yet experienced eternal life. So we get to run our fingers through the icing, but the cake is yet to come. He's writing that we... He's writing so we would have the joy of this kind of confident relationship with our Creator. And he, if you were here a couple weeks ago, he dismantled three false claims that are barriers to relationship with God and this kind of joy. And he introduced each phrase by, if we claim, then we're wrong. If we claim to have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we're deceived because sin separates us from God. If we claim we have no sin nature, we're deceived because we sin because we're sinners. If we claim we don't sin, we're deceived because all sin, God says so. And now in 1 John 2, 3 to 27, he's going to give three tests of this genuine faith, this new life. And we're going, to, we're going to, again, work through the larger passage in the weeks to come. Today I'm going to just give you overview so we won't get lost as we walk through it the next few weeks. And these three tests of genuine faith, eternal life, are the moral test, the social test, the doctrinal test. You see them right there. And those are the corresponding verses. You can read them on your own. The born again Spirit-filled believer, which is every true Christian is spirit-filled, will experience growing Christ-like moral character, growing Christ-like love for others, and they'll have beliefs that align with who Christ actually is because they've already experienced new life in Christ. Let's look at these three tests, but first a word about tests. About half the population has significant test anxiety that interferes with their ability to perform up to capability. Some of you get sweaty palms just hearing the word test. Others get excited because to you, a test is to separate yourself from the pack. You love tests. But when we discuss tests, it's important to remember that we're, we're training for godliness biblically. We're not trying for it. Testing in our minds is, is pass-fail. But there's a different way of thinking about tests, and that is tests are a way to train for, to be accountable for faithfulness. No one's going to score 100% on these tests, whatever that would even mean, and we're not competing with each other for high scores. These tests are helpful. Thinking about John's tests are helpful for two reasons. One, they can help us make sense out of what we're seeing when we see people claim Christ and their lives and beliefs are confusing. In 1 John 2:19, he wrote, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us because if they belonged to us, they would have remained, but their going showed that they didn't belong to us. So they said, this is just going to happen. There's going to be people go AWOL. There's going to be people leave and that's sad but it can't undo us because biblically the ultimate sign of saving faith is enduring faith faith that finishes and God alone knows who are his and we're not left completely in the dark as to how to understand what we're seeing versus what people are saying he's told us in his word they're going to be deceivers imposters people who don't finish and it can be heartbreaking but don't be confused about what's happening the gospel is not failing some person is walking away from it and then these tests are helpful because they give us some training objectives. They direct us towards increased certainty in our relationship with Christ. John's going to conclude this letter with, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So if you put your faith in Jesus, God incarnate, you can know. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. In Islam, you hope. You won't know. Even Muhammad, the, the founder of Islam, he didn't know to get the other side. Most if not all human religions, leave you guessing. That's not how God operates. He wants you to know. And these tests can be helpful to increase certainty of the gospel. We're certain because of the promise of God, but what we do can impact for better or for worse our capacity for certain. So our certainty is in God, not in ourselves, but we can train to increase our confidence. 
And again, it's important we have a biblical view of what eternal life actually is to make sense out of these tests. And we'll talk about this more when we get to 1 John 5, but but it's not living a long time after death. Eternal life is a different kind of life, restored fellowship with God, never separated from him again by sin. It's not just living a long time. If we die, this is kind of how the world thinks, Christians think, if we die, it's better to haunt heaven as some kind of spirit being than go to hell. But certainly being dead is worse than being alive. No, the hope of Christians is the resurrection of the body, a new heaven, a new earth, to be restored to original relationship with God, to fully live as we were designed to live. This kind of life, life in Christ, begins at conversion and doesn't end at death. And so these tests are a kind of evidence that we are in Christ, that we've been given the Holy Spirit to live this kind of life now. And this Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is a deposit of the guarantee that this life we have now won't end at death. Every year the, the military members have to take a PT test to see if they meet standards. And if they fail, they, there's a process to try and succeed. But if they don't get a passing score after a period of time, they can be discharged from the military. But PT tests are not designed to kick members out. They're designed to encourage members to train, to be physically faithful for physical fitness for mission accomplishment. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But the military really wants to keep members in. They don't set up these tests. Let's see what kind of tests we can set up to kick as many people out as possible. It's really expensive to recruit and train and retain members. And every branch except the Marines is really short. They don't want people to fail PT tests. They want them to succeed. They want them fit to fight, but they want them. And so the PT test purpose is to inspire faithfulness, not to separate people from the military. And so when considering John's test personally, if you're a Christian, don't think about this like, I'm always checking to see if I'm in. This is about targeted training. This is some ways to increase your confidence, your certainty. So don't say, this is a test to see if I'm good enough. If I fail, I'll get kicked out. Your confidence is in Christ and his finished work on the cross. Not how you feel today, not even how you're doing today. But you can do certain things, train certain ways, that can increase your confidence and your joy and experience of God. Let's look briefly at the three tests. The first is obedience to the moral test. You can find it in those verses. And in those verses... John talks about how we can be sure that we know him, not about him, if we obey him. And this is, again, not working for salvation. This is working out your salvation. This is not working for faith. This is the fact that faith works. Real saving faith works. And becoming a Christian is not just swapping ideas about things. It's not like sort of changing political parties. It's becoming a new creation. That's what Paul said in Corinthians. If anyone's in Christ, he or she's a brand new creation. And you may not have had a dramatic experience in terms of life change when you came to Christ, but everybody who's been born again has had a dramatic conversion experience. You may not have noticed it, but you did. Everybody has different backstories, but everyone has the same testimony. So the eight-year-old whose worst sin is maybe lying to his mom about stealing candy or the convicted murderer on death row, if they're born again, their testimony is exactly the same. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Different backstories, but the same testimony. Now remember, he's already said we sin because we're sinners. We're now saved sinners being sanctified. We're not sinless. So James is not saying we're going to live a life of perfection, but this is going to be a life of growing fruit, evidence, growing obedience. 
We ought to be growing in Christ-like character. And this is our great opportunity, our great privilege. And one reason maybe that we aren't growing is maybe we're not actually Christians. Another reason is the hide-and-slide syndrome. If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, well, then listen to last week. We talked about it at length. In any case, sin can undermine our certainty. Obedience can build it. And there's a tension here. We don't earn God's favor by obedience, but we demonstrate that we are His by doing what He says. And the word John used here in keeping His commandments is a word that means careful attention to. It's not just external conformity to rules. It's a heart set on God's pleasure. And it's not our burden to keep his commands, it's our privilege because his commands are life. Scripture says sin is death. I read an article yesterday written by a secular source about how the sexual revolution, started arguably in the 60s, has succeeded in creating more sexual freedom and has succeeded in making us less happy, more broken, more dysfunctional, more enslaved. If we're his, it is our privilege to obey him. As a child, I really wanted to please my dad because I loved him because he loved me first. I didn't just wake up one day and start loving my dad and my dad started loving me. I started loving my dad because he loved me first. And in my efforts to tag along and be where he was, were not to earn his favor, I had it. I tagged along to enjoy his favor. That's the heart of this passage. If we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit's in us, we want to obey him. We're going to mess up, fess up, move on. But the person who claims Christ and gives no evidence of this in his life is deceived. And again, be careful. Don't use this to pass judgment on people. You don't get to walk around like the junior Holy Spirit checking people's ID. Jesus said that the weeds and the wheat are going to grow up together. God alone is going to sort it out in the end. But you can make some sense out of a person who claims Christ but shows no evidence of Christ-like character. The gospel is not the lie. The gospel is not the problem here. Then there's a social test. I'll read the passage next week. But John wrote, the command to love is old, the command to love is new. The command is as old as the Old Testament, but Jesus has embodied it in a brand new way. The test of being in Christ and the Spirit dwelling in you is going to be love for others. And when, and when Christians, pastors, priests, really anyone, claims Christ and abuses people, it is horrific beyond words. There's just no excuse. The, the damage is unthinkable. As I was thinking about applying this love test in my own life, I have to be wise because I can read these stories and I can think, well, I've been a pastor for 35 plus years. I've never abused anybody. That's a pretty low bar for love. I'm passing a love test because I haven't abused anybody. Really? I said last week, the new cultural ethic is not be like Jesus, but don't be Hitler. Okay, that's not that hard to do. It's a pretty low bar. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemy. That's what John meant by the command is old, but it's brand new. The practical application would be measure life by this kind of test. What, what would it mean to love Trump? What would it mean to love Biden, depending on where you are starting with? How do I love the person whose beliefs and behavior is that I hate? How do I love them? How do I love the person who's really annoying? How do I love the person who's coming after you at work or school? It doesn't mean that we comply with the, with, with the demand that in order to love someone, I have to agree with their beliefs and behaviors. That's just not true at all. But we're not off the hook to love because we don't agree with what someone believes or does. Our test of love is a really high bar. He concluded this very passage, just in case we weren't clear, like this. Be perfect, 
like your Father in Heaven is perfect. That's the standard. You say, well, that's impossible. We're not going to hit it, but we, we don't get to settle for less. We don't get to settle for, I'm not Hitler. <laughs> we have to settle for, I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow until the end of my life and beyond. And then there's belief, the doctrinal test. We're going to unpack this passage in a few weeks. But there's a clear distinction between true and false believers and what they confess and believe about Jesus. And theologians have talked about the, the visible and the invisible church. The visible church is just everybody that shows up. They're visible. You can see them. Maybe they make a profession of faith with their mouth, like 1 John 2.19. They showed up, but they didn't stay. They didn't remain. They may, they may be a part of the church, mingling like the weeds and the wheat growing together, but, but not all of them are, are actually born again of the Spirit. The invisible church is the body of Christ, the ones who, who are visible, but they're also, they actually have been born again. And again, we don't get to sort this out. It's way above our pay grade. Jesus said, I'll sort it out at the end. So as a church, we, we set up biblical standards for belief and behavior if you want to join River. If you want to be in leadership, what are those biblical standards? When necessary, and it's rarely necessary, we would practice church discipline as Jesus taught us. But we don't always know who's authentic or not. And John, John says some are going to defect. And the key doctrinal or truth test of the professing Christian revolves around their view of the person of Jesus. John says the liar denies that Jesus is the Christ. In 2 John, he'll say they deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. So for them, Jesus was a mere man. Maybe, maybe they were great moral teachers like Thomas Jefferson's Jesus. Maybe God's hand and power on him, but he's not God. Maybe he's the best moral teacher ever, but not the propitiation for our sins. The appeasement of God's wrath by the love of God, through the gift of God. They deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They deny that he possesses two perfect natures, human and divine, the incarnation. But you go back to the beginning of John's gospel, not his letter, but his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. That's God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh, incarnation, and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. So many accept Jesus as special, maybe a unique moral teacher, but to know Christ in a saving way, you have to understand who he actually is. Now, how deep, here's the question, how deep does your theology have to be to be in? <laughs> See, if, if, we have to, if we have to completely understand the incarnation, the child surely couldn't be saved, but neither could the smartest theologians ever lived. Because no person has anything other than a pretty dim understanding of the Incarnation. But the good news is, if you, if you think about this in terms of relationship with people. I've been married to Christy for 40 years. I've known her for 44. And I'm, I'm never going to understand her completely. I'm never going to get to the bottom of her. Every week, you know, convinces me that's true. Um, but I know her accurately and I know her adequately. I know her enough to have real relationship with her. And so just think about this. Do you have to have perfect knowledge of God to know God? Then nobody's going to know God. But you have to have adequate and accurate. What, is, what has he told us about himself? And that's what you need. And a child can have that. So what John says, we have to believe that Jesus is God, became man to die for our sins. So how do these three tests help us make sense out of what we see when we look around? Well, when we look around and we say, how can a Christian, a growing Christian, consistently act like that? Maybe the answer is they can't. Something's wrong. 
we're seeing something's wrong. The gospel's not broke, but something's wrong here. How can a growing Christian be so consistently unloving? Well, they can't. Something's wrong. How can a Christian deny Christ? They can't. Something's wrong. And I say something's wrong with them, not so that we would sit in judgment on them or think highly of ourselves. This is not about racking and stacking ourselves in some kind of order. But, but the point of this is that we should go, the gospel's not broke. It never is. The gospel always works. Something's wrong. People can be deceived. And there's ways we can recognize where people are off. And then these three tests can help us focus on ways to increase our own confidence. So you don't try to feel confident. You do what certainty does, and certainty will come. So you ask, how do I live my life like Jesus? What ethical choices do I make in my real life? What, would it, what, would, what does it look like for Terry as a 64-year-old guy, grandpa, father, husband, pastor? What does it look like for me to live like Jesus? How do I pay attention to my life in Christ? As I do that, you know what happens? My confidence in Christ and the gospel grows. How do I love the people God's put in my life? If I choose to live out Philippians 2, put the interests of others ahead of my own, then I have greater joy and faith. I already have God's pleasure, but as I, as I love people, if I love my wife or I love somebody who I don't like, I feel God's pleasure. So when I love those I don't like or agree with or who attack me, I'm going to grow in gospel confidence. And then how do I grow in knowledge and worship of Jesus as he actually is? So you read scripture that tells us who Jesus is. You read good books that help you understand who Jesus is. There's a, a really important word there. Did you hear? Good books. Not just books. Not just podcast websites. The, good theology. There's really bad theology and there's really good theology. And I read good theology and it helps me understand who Jesus is. And when I, when I see Jesus as he's revealed himself in the scripture, then lesser ideas of what it means to be human just look pale and flat. When I look at Jesus in his three-dimensional robust self, then I see, well, here's what it means to be human. And that just looks like a, a, a stick drawing on a piece of paper. Confidence grows as I understand more and more of who Jesus is. So the three tests really are the character of Christ, the love of Christ, and the truth of Christ. And they can help us see what we're seeing. The gospel's never failed. Some people have failed to believe it and live in it. They help us train for certainty. Our certainty is in Christ, but we can train to trust him more. Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to pray. I'm going to let you start um, preparing your heart. Rodney, are you here? You can come on up. We're going to move straight to communion, and we're going we're gonna, to um, act out the gospel together. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to begin to just get into a spirit a mode of prayer, and then Rodney's going to lead us in our time of communion.